We continue in our study of the book of Daniel, and so I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler of them over them all. Thou art this head of gold. We looked over this passage last Lord's Day, and so I'm not going to expound upon the passage as a whole. We're going to focus our attention basically on the last few words of verse 38. Thou art this head of gold. We're going to be considering the rise and the fall of Babylon the Great. The rise and fall of Babylon the Great is, is a history that begins back in Genesis. Begins with that tower that was built in Babel in Genesis 11 and ends in the future judgment upon mystery Babylon the great the mother of harlots in Revelation chapter 17 the history of Babylon is a is a picture of rebellion against the Lord It's a history of establishing absolute power in an earthly ruler. It's a history of establishing false religion that is hostile to the one true living God. The religion that he has established in his own holy word. Thus to trace the history of Babylon the Great is to trace the ongoing battle of man's futile attempt to exert his will over God's will, God's sovereign will. It's a fascinating history through time. It's an instructive history that all of the attempts of man to conquer the Lord, no matter how powerful the ruler, the nation or the religion might be, they will certainly be in vain. That attempt to conquer the Lord will be in vain and will surely receive the judgment of a holy God. Dear ones, this is a wake-up call to those who have ears to hear. Let our trust not be in the might, in the riches, in the resources of nations and religions that rebel against our king, but in him who has crushed the Babylonian heresy throughout history and will do so again in the future. Our main points today are the following. Uh, The origin of Babylon the Great and its judgment. The second main point, the resurgence of Babylon the Great and its judgment. And the third main point, the end of Babylon the Great and its judgment. 
This is going to be a brief panoramic view of Babylon uh, in scripture. So let's look first at the origin of Babylon the Great and its judgment. Quickly, by way of review, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation were supernaturally revealed unto Daniel. Uh, the wise men were unable to, uh, to know the dream or its interpretation. God gave that to Daniel. And as we are in this portion of chapter 2, Daniel's standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he has, uh, in the previous verses, verses 31 through 35, revealed what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt. Beginning in verse 36 through verse 45, uh, he begins to explain to Nebuchadnezzar uh, the meaning of the dream which he dreamt. <clears throat> Daniel, in verse 37, and this is what we focused our attention upon in the last uh, sermon, he addressed Nebuchadnezzar, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. Whereas this earthly king was given by God a limited portion of the earth to reign over. In contrast, Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, according to 1 Timothy 6.15. Presently, he's the King of Kings. He's not going to become the King of Kings, uh, but he is now the King of Kings. And he has been given all creation as his portion to reign over to the benefit and to the good of his church, according to Ephesians 1.22. Well, Daniel first interpreted the head of gold on the enormous uh, image. Uh, that was what he saw in the dream. He told, as he told Nebuchadnezzar, this dream, this, this huge image had, first of all, a head of gold. And then in verse 38, at the very end of verse 38, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, what the meaning of that head of gold was. He says, Thou art this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar represented the glorious empire of Babylon that then existed. Babylon has, however, an origin elsewhere in Scripture. It didn't just begin with Nebuchadnezzar, which actually connects, its origin actually connects with it, this place in Daniel chapter 2 and later in prophetic scripture. And so we need to be able to tie together. It's no accident that we have in scripture the origin of Babel or Babylon in Genesis 11. And then we have Babylon taking captive God's people in uh, Daniel and particularly telling the story of Daniel and his three friends. And then that in Revelation chapter 17, we find again uh, this mystery, Babylon the Great, that is depicted for us. So we're going to, in a very short amount of space and time, try to connect some dots uh, throughout biblical history. And again, this may be a little different than um, what we ordinarily do, a little more history, but again, in order to understand the Bible, since the Bible's full of history, we need to be, again, familiar with biblical history and understand how that relates to what God is doing in this world and what he has done. And so we hope to do that uh, in the sermon this Lord's Day. So turn with me, hold your place, and we'll come back uh, to Daniel. Uh, but turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> 
Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they began to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And turn with me to the previous chapter, chapter 10, Genesis 10, uh, beginning with uh, verse 8, reading through verse 10. Genesis 10, 8 through 10. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. <clears throat> After the worldwide flood, Noah and his descendants left the ark there on Mount Ararat, descended from the mount, which is in, now in modern Turkey, and headed eastward uh, toward the land of Shinar, modern Iraq, uh, settling there in that area, where a city was built which came to be called subsequently Babel uh, or Babylon. According to John, Daniel 1-2, this was, again, where they were taken. And uh, Daniel 1-2 says that they were taken as captives into the land of Shinar, which, again, was Babylon. And verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah into his hand, that is into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Noah and his family that settled there in Shinar worshipped Jehovah, the one true living God. They embraced the covenant that God made with, with Noah and with his generations. And they began to multiply. They began to replenish the earth as God had commanded back in Genesis 9-1. After the flood, God, had, God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Replenish the earth. But there was born uh, to... Noah's grandson, uh, Cush, and then a son was born to Cush.
Cush by the name of Nimrod. His name, Nimrod, means a rebel. And a rebel he was against God and against God's word. We read that Nimrod was a mighty one in Genesis 10, verse 8. A mighty one in the earth. Uh, now, the way in which that word is used, it can be a mighty one for God or it can be a mighty one against God. Uh, Nimrod was a mighty one against God, not for God. Nimrod is also called here a mighty hunter in verse 9, a mighty hunter. Now, someone might think, well, he, he was a hunter of animals, uh, maybe even ferocious animals. Uh, but uh, though that may have been the case, uh, this most likely doesn't refer to him being a, a mighty hunter of animals, but a mighty hunter of people, of people. Because this... Uh, word hunter uh, is also used in the Bible, or forms of the same word are used in the Bible uh, to refer to one who hunts men. Not only hunts uh, animals, but hunts men. For example, in 1 Samuel 24, 11, David is speaking to King Saul. Moreover, my father, See, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee. Yet thou huntest my soul to take it. Likewise, in Ezekiel 13, verse 21, your kerchiefs also will I tear and deliver my people out of your hand and they shall be no more in your hand to be hunted. Speaking again of, of uh, God's enemies that had taken Israel, they will no longer be in your hand to be hunted by you. The tyranny of Nimrod apparently was so well known that he actually became a proverb in verse 10 or verse 9, chapter 10, verse 9. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. So his name basically became a proverb to speak of those who tyrannized uh, the people, who hunted people. Uh, much like we might say that the name of Judas became a proverb for those who betray, or Benedict Arnold uh, becomes a name for those who, who betray. Uh, so the name of Nimrod became a proverb, a, a name for one who practiced tyranny and practiced false religion. <clears throat> he hunted people, he tyrannized them, it says, before the Lord. That is, he, he did so. He practiced his tyranny, his false religion, as if he were shaking his fist in God's face before the Lord. Not, uh, shape, not uh, before the Lord in a humble, broken and contrite sense, but before the Lord in a proud and arrogant and uh, in a way, again, that showed his rebellion against the Lord. Uh, he extended uh, his kingdom not only over Babel or Babylon, but he extended his kingdom, we're told in verse 10, over Eric, Akkad, and Kalna. So here was an empire that was growing under Nimrod at that time. 
It was Nimrod uh, that had this devious plan to disobey the Lord and going forth into the world. God had commanded that they go forth into the world and replenish the earth. Uh, It was, however, Nimrod who said, no, let's not go forth into the world. Let's stay here united and uh, let us form a conspiracy against the Lord. Let us disobey. Let us rebel against the Lord. Unite ourselves in defying God and rather show that defiance by coming together to build uh, this city and to build this tower, this tower of Babel. This tower was most likely what, what is called a ziggurat, uh, a pyramid-like four-squared terraced temple dedicated to false gods. Archaeological findings have uncovered such a tower or ziggurat among the ancient ruins of Babylon, which many believe to be this very tower. It was rebuilt by Nebuchadnezzar and his son, Nebuchadnezzar, and may have been the very place where the holy things of the temple were taken from Jerusalem when they came to Babylon in Daniel 1-2. It says that Nebuchadnezzar took the holy things of God and put them into the house of his God. It may have been this very place. This tower was enormous. According to Strabo, a Greek historian, it was just over 600 feet high two football fields high. Uh, And uh, the base of it uh, was 600 feet square. Again, two football fields on each side. That was according to Herodotus, the, uh, the Greek historian. The Great Pyramid of Giza was in its original construction, 480 feet high. So this, uh, again, was even higher uh, than that pyramid was. This tower was really the symbol of rebellion of, uh, against the Lord God. It was a symbol of rebellion against his word, his commandments, It was a symbol of rebellion against the true religion. It was a symbol uh, of rebellion against good government. This project of building this, this tower was really a call for unity to do evil, to stand together in hostility against God and to establish the first recorded instance of public false religion and public tyrannical government, the first instance that we find in Scripture. The idea of it reaching uh, unto heaven in Genesis 11.4 was not a spatial uh, reaching so much into heaven, but rather a religious reaching to heaven and the false gods that they worshipped. This event here in the building of the Tower of Babel and then of the confusion of their languages likely occurred about 100 to 200 years after the flood, probably in around 2200 to 2100 B.C. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood, according to Genesis 9.28, which means that there was a faithful remnant, even in Babel at this time, Noah and those 
who were faithful to him, a preacher of righteousness, even under the tyranny of Nimrod. Noah lived to see God's judgment upon the earth in the flood and most likely lived to see God's judgment upon Babel, Babylon in the confusion of languages which the Lord brought to Nimrod's attempt at one, a one-world government and a one-world religion. Nimrod and his kingdom of Babylon, both of those were defeated by the Lord as the Lord gave to those who were building this huge tower instantaneously gave them different languages. Can you imagine the confusion uh, that uh, ensued? Not being able to communicate with one another. Uh, asking people to repeat what they said. Uh, getting angry. Uh, violence that occurred uh, in that situation. Families probably were left intact, speaking the same language, but then they were driven, as God had originally commanded them to go and to replenish the earth. God judged them and sent them forth to replenish the earth and to form various people groups, ethnic groups, different nations and kingdoms uh, in the various parts of the world uh, from that point on. This was again the end to which God brought uh, that original Babylon. God's judgment fell upon it because again of, of its tyranny, because of its uh, persecution under Nimrod, because of the false religion uh, that was practiced. That tower was basically a tower dedicated to uh, their false gods. Uh, and, uh, and so it was a religious tower. It wasn't just simply uh, a, civ a civic center. It was a religious tower uh, that was dedicated to their false gods. Well, that did not end there, though, again, it appears that the tower fell into disrepair. But, but the tower did not end there. Um, and Babylon certainly did not end there. As we come to the second main point, the resurgence of Babylon the Great and its judgment. Babylon <clears throat> was overrun. That, that is the kingdom of Babel uh, under Nimrod. Uh, eventually was overrun by various kingdoms for about 300 years until the Babylonian Empire once again became powerful and reached its height under Hammurabi uh, in 1750 BC. Then the Hittites eventually brought the old Babylonian kingdom to an end. And it was then about 1100 years later that Nebuchadnezzar and his son Nebuchadnezzar reestablished the Babylonian Empire um, from about 616 to 539 BC. That's where we find ourselves now uh, in, is in this stage of the, of the Babylonian Empire of Babylon in Daniel chapter 2 in the book of Daniel but in this particular section of Daniel Babylon reached its height of glory, in fact, under Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned from 605 to 562 BC. His lust for worldwide domination can be seen in, in scripture, as he conquered all the surrounding nations, including Judah. That is how, again, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah came to be in Babylon was due to the lust 
of this king and acquiring worldwide domination, tyranny uh, over nations. His absolute power that he claimed to himself certainly can be seen uh, similar to Nimrod's, can be seen in the immediate command of Nebuchadnezzar to execute all the wise men of Babylon. Uh, again, he didn't need to consult anybody. He just said, I want them dead, and it had to be done. That absolute power that we see, again, as we saw in Nimrod, so we see here in Nebuchadnezzar. He established a false religion to his gods. And the fact that he worshipped false gods and not that he himself established that, that was simply a continuation of this same false religion uh, that had been from the very beginning in Babel established. It continued that false religion through the various nations that ruled in that part of the world. And so likewise, Nebuchadnezzar continued the worship of these false gods. As we see that uh, the holy things of the temple were taken and placed in the house, uh, perhaps again, the house being that tower of Babel that was dedicated uh, to uh, the god, the false god Marduk there in Babylon. <clears throat> His persecution of the faithful, similar to Nimrod's, well, it can be seen uh, when uh, we, we see uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah cast into the fiery furnace. The, the, again, the false religion establishing this this image and calling upon all people to bow down and worship it. So again, um, the, the same basic tenets of that original Babylon are being carried over into this particular stage of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar as well. And just as there were the faithful, Noah and those who were his <clears throat> followers, uh, and in following the one true living God. So we have a, a faithful remnant in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in uh, Daniel, and in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Ezekiel uh, as well, who is later taken captive and taken to Babylon as well. And so here again, trying to connect certain dots, we see what seems to be common to Babylon is tyranny, false worship, persecution, worldwide domination, and a very powerful leader. Question arises, perhaps in your mind, as it has in mind, how could Daniel and his three friends lawfully serve under such a king of tyranny, false religion, and persecution? Well, let me answer that by saying that they could only do so because there was no unlawful oath that they had to swear to uphold uh, uh, an office. They certainly did not agree with or approve of anything that was contrary to the word of God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, however, apparently did not have an oath that they had to swear to a constitution. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a law unto himself, uh, apparently. But they were uh, put into that place by God to bear testimony to the most powerful king of that time, that he is really nothing. He's nothing. And his gods are nothing compared to the God of Israel. And so let us understand, as we apply that same truth, that Nebuchadnezzar, or that Daniel and his three friends were able to serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar because they didn't have to take and swear a false, an unlawful oath Applying that to ourselves, 
uh, it is uh, the unlawful oath that one must swear presently to our own constitution that prevents us from serving in a civil capacity. Uh, it would be a violation of the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain to uphold and swear an oath to uphold the constitution uh, that basically uh, uh, through its laws, through its constitution ordains polytheism. Uh, not the one true religion but uh, that, that there shall not be uh, any act by Congress uh, to hinder, to infringe upon uh, the rights of, of religion, uh, any religion that someone may hold. And so that, that again, uh, basically promotes every false religion. While we cannot take an oath to uphold a constitution that, again, uh, ordains and constitutes uh, every religion to be equal uh, to biblical Christianity and does not uh, own Jesus Christ to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, does not own his law to be the supreme law of the land. Dr. John Cunningham, who was a Covenanter minister in 1843, uh, made the same point in a book he wrote called The Ordinance of Covenanting, page 392, where he says, were such oaths to the present government abolished, then those who love the truth might enter Parliament. Uh, he was he was a Scot, um, uh, but uh, so he's talking about Great Britain. Then those who love the truth might enter Parliament and act without being responsible for the evils of the civil constitution and of the administration, and at the same time lead to essential political reformation, as happened with Daniel in Babylon at that time. Uh, he had a mighty testimony for the truth. Uh, and so the Lord used him that way. Well, again, if we did not have to swear an unlawful oath, we would be able to do the same thing as did Daniel, but not having uh, that opportunity because, again, the Constitution requires such an oath to be sworn, then we cannot hold those offices. Once again, in this Babylon of Babylon the Great of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it was judged by the Lord when Cyrus of the Medes and Persians entered the impregnable city of Babylon by diverting the Euphrates River so that his army was able to uh, wade into the river and through the river to gain access into the city. And as the gates of the city were unexpectedly, uh, mysteriously left open at that very time, at that very moment, uh, according to Xenophon uh, in his history, uh, which is actually what is said would happen in Isaiah 45.1, that the gates would be left open to Babylon, where it says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Ancient Babylon, with its tyranny, false religion, persecution, worldwide desire for domination, and having a tyrant sitting upon the throne was destroyed by another nation by the Medes and the Persians, as we will see, God willing, next Lord's Day, through Cyrus, king of the Medes and Persians. That brings us to the third main point, the end of Babylon the Great and its judgment. 
And I would have you turn with me to Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now we move to the last expression of Babylon the Great. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Like the previous expressions of Babylon, Mystery Babylon the Great is a worldwide, tyrannical, persecuting, false religion that exerts its domination over the nations and, as I will seek to show and as as I go through these verses very briefly, uh, I believe this is the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome is Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. First of all, uh, it is a false harlot church that rides upon and uses the civil beast. This, this beast that the, the harlot's riding upon represents the civil Aspects, the civil government that uh, is uh, used for wicked purposes, not to rule on behalf of God, but to rule against God, and to rule on behalf of the enemy, on, the, on behalf of Satan. And it's upon that particular beast that this woman is riding, we read. Uh, this woman is called the harlot because... This woman is not faithful. It's not a faithful wife. It's an unfaithful wife. It's a pretended wife of Christ. You see, this cannot refer to a non-Christian religion. This woman cannot refer to a non-Christian religion. Cannot refer to paganism. Cannot refer to pagan Rome. Uh, because uh, you cannot describe false religions that that do not claim to be a Christian religion uh, at all to be a harlot. Uh, this, this is, again, a harlot because uh, it claims to be a Christian religion, and yet it's unfaithful. Uh, it's corrupt. Uh, it's pretended, a pretended wife of Christ. Furthermore, the very name Mystery Babylon um, this is not talking about political Babylon. Mystery Babylon means this is a hidden Babylon. Uh, this is a Babylon that would not immediately appear from uh, the Babylon that we find recorded in Scripture in history. This is a mystery of that. This is a, something hidden, something that isn't conspicuous and evident. And so... This again uh, would, would indicate that we're not talking about a, a mere political Babylon, but something that is mystery, that is hidden, 
that's mysterious, that, that uh, cannot be easily seen. And this is why, again, we, we have uh, the next few verses that we might have a better understanding of this mystery Babylon. This is a church that uh, commits spiritual fornication with civil rulers. In other words, making all manner of compromises of the truth. Christ's truth with the kings of this earth in order to form alliances, in order to be able to ride upon the kings of these earth to direct its own agenda and design to push its own worldwide domination. According to verse 2, commits spiritual fornication with civil rulers. Then we find uh, it's also a church that has great wealth and elaborate clothing in verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Uh, consider the wealth of Rome, uh, cathedrals, the gold, uh, the, uh, the precious stones, uh, all that we see in St. Peter's Basilica and all of the, these large cathedrals throughout the world. The wealth of Rome is here depicted. Uh, even the color uh, of the uh, vestments that the bishops and archbishops and cardinals wear, that of purple and scarlet are as well depicted here very well. Next, it's a church that has a golden cup that is full uh, of abominations, according to verse 4. That, that cup, uh, which Rome holds, is full of abominations. They claim is the literal blood of Jesus Christ that is transformed uh, from being wine into the literal blood. It's an abomination. It's blasphemous uh, to... Uh, say that Jesus Christ, his blood, uh, appears, is that he is sacrificed again and again uh, in the Mass. And so this is an abomination in this golden cup. Next we see that this is a church that persecutes uh, the faithful saints, according to Revelation 17, 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So this is a, a persecuting uh, church. Uh, it's filled with the blood of the saints. Verse, chapter 18, verse 13. Next chapter says that uh, it's also a place that enslaves the souls of men as well. And uh, so history is full of deadly and violent persecutions against the faithful who stood for Jesus Christ and his word and the history of the Roman church. Here in verse uh, 6, uh, it says concerning John, says, I wondered with great admiration, uh, in other words, with great amazement. He was amazed at the fact that this woman was drunken with the blood of the saints. Now, if this woman referred to pagan Rome, he wouldn't be amazed by that because he had already gone through the persecution uh, of Nero. He knew that uh, Nero uh, certainly uh, was um, one who uh, brought about the blood of the saints, and, uh, and that wouldn't have amazed him. But what amazed him, I submit to you, is that this was a church that named the name of Christ that was drunken with the blood of the saints. That's why he was in amazement that this woman was such a church, a harlot, a pretended wife, and was persecuting the faithful of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then finally, it is a church that sits upon seven mountains or seven hills, according to Revelation 17.9. Rome is throughout history called the city built upon seven hills. And this church, as we find in verse 18, this church, this uh, mystery, Babylon the Great, is identified in verse, uh, verse 18 as that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth at the time of John. A great city that reigneth over the kings of the earth. Rome. Again, Rome. Not pagan Rome, but again, Christian Rome that has fallen into apostasy, that is a harlot and is the mother of harlots, producing other churches who follow her in her path as well. Now let me add that like Babel, Babylon, back in the time of Nimrod that had its tyrant, Nimrod, and like Babylon at the time of Daniel that had its tyrant, tyrant Nebuchadnezzar, so mystery, Babylon the Great has its tyrant, the papacy. As we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He sits in the temple of God in, in, the, in the visible, in some expression of the church, claiming himself to be God. And uh, again, that's where uh, the papacy sits uh, in the Church of Rome, claiming that uh, the Pope is the vicar of Jesus Christ. And in claiming to be the vicar, the representative, the substitute Christ, uh, they actually, uh, perhaps unwittingly, uh, identify themselves completely with Antichrist which simply means, again, anti-Christ means the vicar of Christ, means in place of Christ, a substitute Christ. But Jesus likewise will destroy Mystery Babylon as well as he destroyed Babel, Babylon at the time of Nimrod, Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, so he will destroy Mystery Babylon in the future. In Revelation 16, 19. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. As I close, I want to make a few applications for you. First of all, a global conspiracy to remove the Lord from his throne is nothing new. Uh, that happened uh, back with Nimrod. Nimrod tried it and failed. Nebuchadnezzar tried it and failed. And the papal antichrist has tried it and continues to try it and he will fail also. No weapon formed against the Lord will prevail against him. According to Psalm 2, he's going to crush, he's going to destroy all of those nations and all those uh, churches that rise up against him. All the man manifestations of anti-Christian governments and anti-Christian churches will again be turned into powder uh, and blown away by the, the true kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need not panic. 
We need not fear. Uh, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. This ought to bring us comfort as we have traced Babylon from the time of Nimrod to the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the time of Mystery Babylon. We ought to have confidence that at each point God prevailed, God destroyed that manifestation of Babylon and its leaders. And so he will do again. Whether it's Mystery Babylon uh, as the Church of Rome or whether it is any kingdom, civil kingdom, that shakes its fist in the face of Jesus Christ, the Lord will destroy that nation. The Lord will bring out of that nation his elect, but he will bring that nation as it is ungodly to its knees, as he has done throughout history. Those nations who have turned against him, he has, he has brought them to destruction. The second application, uh, beware of pitches for unity that are not based upon the truth of Jesus Christ. That was the appeal of Nimrod in ancient Babel, Babylon. Let us come together. Let us join hands to build this tower to show that we are one people, that we can defy the living God. The promise to bring about so much good, if unified together, is always held out uh, in promoting unity. It's always that this will be what's best for, uh, for the greater number of people. If we're simply one, if we're simply unified. The faithful few who will not join in their union of error and diversity of doctrine uh, will always be accused of hating and despising the majority. No doubt that was the case with Noah uh, there in the time of Babel, just as it was before the flood, so it was after the flood. That was the case with regard to Daniel and his friends. Uh, it has always been the case through history. Those who would not join with Mystery Babylon uh, were viewed as being, again, that they despised and hated unity. No, they didn't despise and hate unity. They only called, that's not unity. That's not biblical unity. Biblical unity is unity in the truth and love of Jesus Christ. Unity for the sake of unity, dear ones, is a false unity. Diversity in gifts is good, but not diversity in doctrine, worship, and church government. That's not good. Another application as we've already noted, there were even a few of the faithful in Babel, uh, like Noah, and in Babylon, like Daniel and his three friends. Let not, uh, look not on the uh, small numbers of the faithful as a reason not to stand with the faithful. There's just so few of them. How could they be right? I can't stand with them. How many times in history has that been the case? We have to be ignorant. We have to be ignorant of history in order to believe that it's, that it's been the majority that have stood with Jesus Christ, with God, with the truth of the Lord. Uh, the far greater time periods that we see in history uh, were the faithful standing for Christ, um, the, the, the minority the few that were standing for Christ, not the, not the many. In fact, they were despised. The few were despised by the majority. And so you will be despised. You'll be despised in standing for the Lord. Though you be few, you'll be, stand, you'll be despised by the majority. You'll be called names. Um, 
separatists, schismatics, troublemakers, divisive, because you desire to stand faithful for Jesus Christ and his truth. But Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. In Matthew 5, 12, realize you are on the winning team. Jesus will prevail. Who will you stand with? You're going to stand with Nimrod or Noah? You're going to stand with Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel? You're going to stand with the world or a worldwide religion? Or are you going to stand with Jesus Christ and his truth? A couple more applications. Next application, power used apart from God's grace, God's love, and God's word will be power that is abused, that is abused against others. And it will be a power that's despised by God himself. That's not his lawful authority and power. Authority, when it's abused, receives a black eye. Because it's not being exercised in the way that Christ has called us to use authority. Authority is to be used on behalf of God to serve, to help, to guide, to teach, and to direct others in love and in the truth. Authority, dear ones, is not to stand behind and shout out demands. Do this and do that. Go here and go there. That's not what authority merely does. It's not to say that authority doesn't command. Authority does command. But it doesn't simply stand behind and say, do this and do that. It goes before. And it says, follow me, I'll show you. Follow me as I follow Christ. As I follow Christ in the truth and as I follow Christ in love and in the true religion, so follow me. And the last application, uh, Nimrod was instituting a false religion that was trying to reach to God by its own works by building this tower, reaching to God, to its God. But Jesus uh, makes clear that all such religion is vain and useless and empty and condemned because we're all sinners and none of us can reach God on our terms. We stand condemned before God. He must reach to us, not us reach to him. And that was what they were attempting to, to, to do, is to reach to God by way of their own works, their, their tower that they would build to their God. But Jesus proclaims himself to be the latter. He's the one who is the latter himself the way the truth and the life in John 151 and he that is Jesus saith unto him that is unto Nathanael verily verily I say unto you hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man he is the bridge he is the the ladder he would be the stairs the gateway to heaven. And he's the one who has come to us and given to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand, dear ones, that rebellion against Jesus Christ 
leads to our own humiliation. When we rebel against God, we're not going to make our lives better. We're not going to find it easier to, to live uh, in our own pleasures. Our own pleasures are going to lead to destruction. But rather, submission to Jesus Christ and his word is that which leads us to God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that opens the way and brings peace unto us. Not, not judgment, not condemnation, but peace through trusting in Christ and his death and his resurrection. Let us learn, let us understand to war against the living God is to fight a battle that we cannot possibly win. No one has ever won a battle fighting against God. Don't think that you will be the first one to win that battle. You will be just another one in that long line of history that thought they could win that battle and have lost. Come to Jesus Christ. Submit to him. Follow him. Trust him in his word, his, his truth, and the promises of the gospel that he will save you, he will keep you if you cast yourself upon him. Come to Christ even today. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank thee and praise thee for thy word that weaves together history, shows us where we have been, where we are, and where we are going. Our Lord, uh, rebellion against thee is nothing new, and it has manifested itself throughout history. Thank thee, our God, that that is the work of, of the Lord Jesus that, that uh, reduces our rebellion uh, 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 to submission to thee. Uh, that takes away the stony heart and gives to us a heart of flesh that writes thy law upon our hearts, that gives to us joy uh, in serving thee and in walking in thy commandments. We pray, our Lord, that thou would work mightily in the lives of all who hear even uh, thy word today, that we would be taken captive by thy grace and brought, Lord, uh, even by that irresistible grace with delight into thy thine everlasting kingdom. We pray, hear us, our God. We thank thee for thy, thy truth in Christ. Amen.